Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited to be interviewing Dr. John Miller, in fact, for the second time, um, because in addition to the book, uh, The Philosophy of Tattoos, that I already have interviewed John about on a previous episode, I now get to talk to him about uh, his subsequent book titled The Heart of the Forest, Why Woods Matter, published in 2022 by the British Library. This is a book that does a lot of different things. Um, It looks at literature, film, art, to think about, to try and understand why woods, why forests matter to us. Um, And thinking about what the fact that they do matter to us, what that means for our future um, and how we should be living our lives in some senses. So, John, I'm very pleased to welcome you back to the podcast. It's great to be here again. Before we dive into this book, however, um, could you maybe introduce yourself a bit for people who perhaps are less familiar with your background and then explain why you decided to write this book? Sure. So I am a senior lecturer in 19th century literature at the University of Sheffield. I'm also a volunteer tree warden in my home city of Sheffield as well. So that gives you a bit of a clue about my relationship to the topic. So I decided to write this this book, as everything I've ever written, it sort of happened a bit by mistake, in that I wrote The Philosophy of Tattoos, and then was chatting to the British Library about what I might do next, and I thought about The Philosophy of Trees, um, simply because I really love trees, which I guess is the main reason why I wrote the book, and... We talked about that for a bit, but the the project grew and grew. So rather than these kind of shorter philosophy books, 15,000 words, it it evolved into a standalone nonfiction title for for the British Library, um, about four times the size, um, with um, a a picture researcher to work with me as well, which was really nice. And in terms of why I decided to write it, so I love trees. That's that's the kind of uh, starting point. I've always loved trees. I've always felt an instinctive affiliation towards forests. I always genuinely get emotionally upset when trees or or forests uh, are harmed, and that is not because of any kind of rational objections to questions about sustainability or ecosystem services. It's just a deep, visceral, emotional attachment to trees. So that's been with me my whole life. Uh, And when I moved to Sheffield in when did I move to Sheffield 2012 Sheffield was known as Europe's greenest city whether that's true or not I'm not sure I don't know how these things are calculated Um, but not long after I moved here it started to become notably less green and this was because the council in partnership with Amy through a PFI contract a private finance initiative decided they were going to cut down half of the city's trees so 17 and a half thousand trees so I'm imagining you might have heard of this it's been in the news recently because uh, an inquiry um, ha- has been published about this so I became involved in this tree campaign um, to try and persuade the council and their contractors not to cut these trees down and these trees weren't unhealthy they weren't damaging though the council said that some of them were so it became this really long-running dispute about different ways of understanding trees the ways in which they're meaningful in people's lives um there's many disputes like this going on on across the the world so for a time 
when I was involved in that that campaign, I felt like any time a tree was cut down anywhere in the world, I would hear about it on social media. So that was really part of the catalyst of thinking more seriously about complex conceptions of cultural value in relation to woods and trees is because I was working largely in the background, um, but occasionally a bit more in the foreground with the campaign to protect Sheffield's um, trees. And this fits in with my broader academic research about literature and ecology, so how literature helps us understand ecological questions and how ecological questions help us understand literary history and other aspects of literary uh, production. So that's my kind of rambling, um, overlong answer of why I came to write the book. It's quite a good answer, really, Um, with the wonderful quotation in it of, I wrote this book because I love trees, which I think in lots of ways sums up what a lot of the book is doing um, and goes into detail in these number of ways. I'm not surprised to hear that it started as a small project and then expanded um, because there are so many ways you could go in writing a book about woods and trees. Um, And in this book, you have ended up with four sections what are they and how did you possibly choose what to focus on? Well, there were other sections. I can't remember what the other sections were. I think there was about six or seven to start with, um, but they kept they kept growing, um, as you would expect the, a forest would, a forest of ideas as well as a forest of trees. So the, the four actual chapters that are actually in the actual book, uh, Refuge, Horror, Sacredness and Hope. So each one of these is a well-established trope related to the history and the literature of trees and forests. So I didn't want to reinvent the wheel, but really just to draw on and think again about these particular recurrent concerns in literature. So refuge, first of all, is, I mean, all of these are kind of really timeless, but I mean, Thinking about refuge, you might go back to Shakespeare's As You Like It. Um, For example, his great tree play, which is about the forest as the opposition to the court, the place where you go to um, experience the beauty and the meaning of nature away from the cutthroat world politics. And of course, that follows through the romantics and into the modern day with ideas like uh, forest bathing, um, for example. So that suggested itself naturally. I didn't want it to be too kind of hippy-dippy. Um, so the next chapter on horror is to insist on the darkness and the tragedy that always goes alongside and within that history of thinking about the forest as refuge. And horror naturally suggests sacredness, since horror, often in cinema and in fiction, is to do with the metaphysics of trees, how they are places where things beyond the natural might lurk. And of course, that helps me to think about more about the global context of trees in terms of how you've got this clash between indigenous cosmologies, ways in which trees are immensely meaningful in people's lives and histories, and how that clashes quite sharply with resource-driven capitalist extractivist ways of thinking about trees as just stuff that's in the way that you can cut down and put something more useful there and lastly hope um, because it it felt like i ought to end on a bit of an upbeat note since there is quite a lot of um engagement with some quite sad stories in the um book but i also wanted to, to push beyond a kind of twee um, sentimental idea of hope, of hope which it seems to be a, a way of avoiding thinking about complicated issues so I wanted to have a kind of darker hope that was more attached to the abject world of the forest floor rather than the bright world of the canopy and all, all of these link with various philosophical conceptions in environmental philosophy they link quite uncomfortably Um, as well but the overarching pattern is to contest the zeitgeist so from the beginning I conceived of this as an anti-capitalist book so a book that foregrounds the limits and the failures and the obfuscations um, that are attached to a capitalist particularly neoliberal view of ecology in the 21st century 
So I'd love to dive into the last part of that answer um, in particular, though, of course, we're going to get into all of those sections um, as we discuss. Why why frame the book that way? Why is thinking about not just trees and forests, but feelings for trees and forests political? Well, I see this as something like, call me an idealist, if you will, the antidote to the objectifying, commodifying way of looking at the world. So we live in what the Colombian anthropologist Arturo Escobar calls the ecological phase of capitalism. So having reduced the world to a state of ecological emergency, capitalist ideas in the process of reinventing themselves to solve the problems that they have caused. So this is where you get what you might call neoliberal environmentalism. So the way in which... Um, you can do what you want if there's some kind of offset. And I'm speaking very generally and broadly here. So in the UK, of course, we've had HS2, the high-speed train link. It's gone through a lot of ancient forests. It's been very uh, controversial. Um, and that has been supported by mechanisms by which they will be replanting elsewhere um, in order to offset or make up for or compensate for the damage that has been done. And this is part of an idea that the economist Dieter Helm refers to as natural capital. Helm didn't invent the term, but he's one of the most notable um, communicators of it. This seems to me to be a terrible idea. And this is um, ultimately the commodification of everything. So the premise is that where we understand everything as signifying only economic forms of meaning, then we can sort everything out. We can cut down all these trees, but it's okay because we'd have to offset that by planting some more trees elsewhere. So this is what's called um, ontological flattening. That's a term um, from the political ecologist Andrea um, Brock. So the idea is nothing means anything in and of itself anymore. No tree, no creature, no landscape, no forest means anything except insofar as it represents a certain amount of natural capital. And so it is always already conceived to be fungible, cut it down, put some more trees somewhere else, which of course is very dangerous ecologically because it takes a long time for small trees to become big trees. Um, and also there's a really significant failure rate in these kind of compensatory replantings. So this is why thinking about ideas like love or horror or sacredness is really crucial because they cannot be so easily commodified. You can't offset a religious experience. Um, and the idea that you might do so is entirely risible. I did play around with it a little bit in, in the book and in an essay I wrote subsequently, the, the idea that if you're going to get rid of ancient forests and plant some more forests elsewhere, what are you going to do with the demons that live there? Could we somehow have a department of supernatural accounting that conjured up um, new demons elsewhere in kind of new forests that are being built to make up for the damage it's done. So feeling is a limit point of global capital. That is the very broad contention. And that is necessary in order to create a deeper ecological culture, a more sustainable ecological culture, and a more inclusive ecological culture that doesn't see everything as only ever to do with extractive capitalist models, but respects other cosmologies, other cultures, other ways of understanding trees and forests. And this is something that you pick up, obviously, further um, in the initial section, because in some senses, thinking about the benefits that humans get from trees is still something in this extractive model, right? What can we get from trees? And it's kind of thought of as a one-way street. Um, but I really appreciated that you sort of opened up that question and thought about kind of what does it mean when we think about benefits that humans get from trees? What does it mean culturally? What does it mean philosophically? And what does it mean politically um, when instead of just thinking of it as a kind of pure cost-benefit analysis, we sort of examine the question a bit more? Yeah, well, I mean, trees are, are beneficial to humans, of course, in all kinds of ways. And one of the most notable contexts over maybe the last decade or so is a significant amount of research about the relationship between nature more broadly and, and mental health. So there's really strong evidence now for 
what is called the nature cure, which I think is a phrase of, of Richard Maybes. And that tells us something really significant, I think, that it's not just in their use that trees or other natural organisms are of benefit to us, um, but in their constitution of a world in which we can feel at home. So Yoshifumi Miyazaki, who's a writer about Shinrin-yoku, the um, Japanese practice of forest bathing, argues that our bodies recognise nature as our home. And I can certainly feel that when I walk into the woods, I can feel my heart rate drop. I automatically feel that I can let go of all the kind of nonsense that fills my head on a day-to-day basis. So these are forms of benefit that are beyond immediate economic utility. But I think it's necessary, if we want to live in a deep ecological culture, to push beyond that and stop thinking about everything in terms of what is of benefit to humans. So my research as a whole to do with literature and ecology and animals is based really on the main theme of of trying to unravel conceptions of anthropocentrism and to try and argue that we'd be better off not thinking of ourselves as exceptional beings around whom all of the world revolves. And one of the real ironies about um, trees is the kind of more anthropocentric you are, the less anthropocentric you are. So the more that you produce a world that is fitted to human convenience, understood in a particular economic model, the more you produce a world in which it's harder to feel at home anymore. You feel alienated and distanced from it. So I think to discover your true self, to find out what it truly means to be human and all these other kind of dreary cliches, what you need to do is is, is attune to the world beyond yourself. And I think that is what forest bathing and other um, practices related to the woods allow us to do, but also reading about trees, immersing yourself in, in that textual world or about art or cinema as well. All of these are ways to think um, beyond ourselves and to understand that the world isn't just about humans. And that, to me, seems to be absolutely central to any movement towards a a meaningfully ecological culture. Hmm. I think there's quite a lot of um, food for thought there and very much something that feels important to incorporate in our thoughts about the future and kind of what we can do now and going forward. Um, But the book doesn't just talk about the future or think about how to think about the future. Uh, You also go into the past, though, of course, making links between the past and present as well as we'll get to. And this is, I think, where I particularly enjoyed the links to literature, um, because in a lot of ways, you took literature that we might be familiar with or genres we might be familiar with, uh, for example, kind of American 1800s, like, oh, cabin woods, yay, nice things, um, that is often seen as nice things, is seen as maybe communions with nature or sort of nostalgic ways of looking at the world, but is not really thought about in the same context as our historical thinking um, about slavery and the experiences of enslaved people, particularly in the American South. And yet, in terms of time period and geography, that's a very relevant thing to bring together. Uh, And it was really interesting that you did in the book through this idea of the forest as refuge, um, which has a very different meaning when we think of it in that context. So I was wondering if you could talk about kind of how you put these things together and what it revealed to you um, about American literature when you did. Yeah, well, the the really striking thing is that Thoreau's Walden, um, which is probably the most famous American tree book, certainly one of the most influential tree books in the world, is happening at the same time that slavery is happening. So while Henry Dravid Thoreau is enjoying himself in his cabin uh, by Walden Pond, um, there are thousands and thousands of slaves um, in America. And Solomon Northup, who's the writer I write most about in that chapter, is experiencing his own version of Forest Refuge at exactly the same time as Thoreau. So it's really interesting to think about that 
romantic literary tradition of the Forest of Refuge in America, of course, home of some of the, the, the world's great woods, as having this other side as well, that in that kind of romantic ecology, for a time, was certainly um, neglected. And it's really striking um, if you read Northup's narrative or Frederick Douglass or Harriet Jacobs or other uh, of, of the slave narratives of the 19th century, how much attention there is to woods. So often a plantation is surrounded by wooded ground. And if you escape from the plantation, there you are in the woods trying to escape from people who are trying to um, harm you. So that experience seemed an absolutely necessary um, thing to put with the rather privileged white world of Thoreau and to think about these two traditions which unfold at the same time as kind of inseparable elements of how we might conceive of the idea of refuge, not just as a place where privileged people can go to salve their souls, but as a place that's to do with kind of materiality that is, is a life and death situation where you have to hide in the woods um, in order to protect yourself. And that really resonates through um, all kinds of literature in, in, in America. And I dip a little bit into the, the blues um, as well to think about um, African-American experiences of the woods beyond what certainly, when I was growing up, was the narrative that you got, was the wide narrative. So, that, I mean, it seemed to me to be... Um, I mean, it's all there in the material, really. And I guess as part of decolonising the curriculum, we're trying to join the dots a little bit more. But there's a really clear connection between the forest as refuge in the context of slavery and that more romantic idea in, in Thoreau. So it's necessary, I think, to, to really um, understand in an inclusive way the meaning of words beyond that privileged white lens. And this, of course, is not just specific to Thoreau or kind of that category of works that he's usually placed within. Um, you also look at this sort of more broadly in terms of the legacies and history of empire as we turn into the section of the book that focuses on forests and horror. So could you tell us a bit about sort of joining up these dots? Well, this is fo following the, 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 the slave trade um, around the world a, a, a little bit. Um, and so the text that I focus on at the start is this amazing novel by Edgar Mittelholzer called My Bones and My Flute, which is about slaves in Guyana at the top of South America. And so Mittelholzer was a Guyanese writer of um, European and African descent, um, who writes this story about going into the jungle in Guyana. Um, um, well, it's not him, it's his, um, I can't remember the name of the main character, but this young artist um, is taken there ostensibly to do some landscape um, paintings for a logging company, um, but actually to solve this mystery about this old Dutch plantation um, owner who is dead and is haunting the people on the the, the logging um, plantation there. So what it's a, a novel about is encountering the ghosts of slave rebellions in the 18th century, the, the, the 18th and 19th century, so the Burbese uprising, a slave uprising in, in Guyana. It was one of a real kind of seismic event in the transatlantic world. So one of the, I mean, forests are full of ghosts, and one of the, forms of ghosts that that um, novel um, tells us about is the, the Jumbi, a version of the zombie. Um, and there's a, a whole tradition of the Dutchman Jumbi in Guyana, which is to do with the ghosts of slaves and the ghosts of Dutch slave owners. So the novel dramatises this quite long-standing aspect of Guyanese folklore, which is about how the undead almost seem to be continuing the battles of slavery into the present. So, and, and we think about empire as something that's past, but it isn't, is it? I mean, when we think about um, continuing deforestation and the continuing struggles of, of indigenous forest peoples throughout the world, we're still in that contrast between extractivist um, 
mindsets and allowing people the possibility to live in peace in places they've lived for a long period of time. And so that idea of horror in the context of, of slavery resonates through, I think, to conceptions of indigenous struggle in the 21st century as well. And so thinking about sort of what you've just discussed and also uh, the wider ways in which woods and forests um, are used in horror, whether that's literature, film, music, how do you evaluate perhaps the cliché element of horror and forests? It definitely is a cliché, isn't it? So there's like this um, pre-existing narrative that exceeds texts and films so if you walk into the woods and get lost then you can almost feel that you're in a film script that every crack of a twig might indicate some psychopath on the loose or some terrifying monster that's gonna uh, consume you um so the, the long tradition of forest horror cinema you know plays with these cliches twists them updates them kind of subverts them um and so you get this endless reiteration of it. And I think that's that's certainly part of the, the attraction of it, that there's a pre-existing set of meanings about it that provide a narrative template to play around with. You know, if you're trying to teach kids a creative writing exercise, you know, someone gets lost in the woods is a great place to start. There's a whole bunch of options, you know, in, in anybody's head about where it goes from there. But even though it's, as you say, kind of cl- cliched, I'm still drawn to the underlying philosophical premise of it, which is to do with not being at home in the world. So when you get lost in the woods, it's like a limit experience. It's counter-anthropocentric. Um, you know, particularly if you don't have your phone or you haven't got phone reception or you've dropped your phone in a stream and you are deprived of the conveniences of the modern world. You're exposed, vulnerable to a world. But even if it is a kind of plantation forest that's been planted by humans, there's still that frisson of what is beyond you. I think it's to do with kind of visibility, I think, to an extent as, as well. We think about humans as being visual creatures, maybe a little bit reductive, but a lot of the metaphors we use uh, are visual. We think about the Enlightenment, um, for example, but when you're in the woods, you can't see so far. You can only see the trees in front of your, your face. And so that creates a new sensorium for your place there which also teases you out of the comforts of your normal understanding of yourself so even if we know the story we've seen it read it experienced it many times before that reenactment or performance of the experience of not being at home in the world i think is a really powerful way of experiencing nature in a deeper and richer way than we might do in our kind of normal social media work-driven um, urban lives, if that's the, the the world that you live in, as I do. And I think in some senses, that's a great example of kind of why cliches are so powerful. We might recognize them as cliches and go, mm, okay, but actually they wouldn't be so pervasive if they didn't have something in them. And I think the forest is a really good example of that for exactly the reasons you've just described. Um, But moving from horror to sacred, which seems like a big jump, but actually in the context of the book makes rather a lot of sense in my mind. Um, I was interested in this exploration of the sacred because the historical element of it linking to forests and trees made a lot of sense to me but it seemed like more of a jump to think about it in today's context, particularly given that world you've just described of the work and the urban and the social media is often, though not always, but often quite secular, um, particularly in its institutions. So how can we think about sacredness in that context, not just existing, but as you discuss in the book, sacredness even having political and ecological force? Yeah, um, so sacredness is kind of unspeakable. Um, When I was involved in the the tree campaign in Sheffield and um, I spent a lot of time writing long, sometimes quite academic emails to local dignitaries explaining why they shouldn't cut the trees down. And often I would 
give hard evidence about the economic values of trees through what's known as the CAVAT valuation system where you can put a price on a tree or I talked about ecosystem services and biodiversity um, all of these arguments that felt like they would hit home uh, and you know I got sort of stock responses about those that you know there's going to be replanting and that all um, that will solve those those problems to an extent. But I also wrote about about the, the, the sacred, and people don't know what to do with that. So when I wrote to the, um, well, they, they do know what to do with about it, actually, they just ignore it. But writing to my local uh, MP, who I w- will not name, said, uh, um, so don't cut the trees down, you know, that they're sacred to me. And that that is genuinely true, and it seems like I'm being facetious, but I'm, I'm genuinely not. So I, I am theologically agnostic. I, I'm not... I don't, don't believe in, in God, but nonetheless, I have a, this instinctive feeling that, that trees are, are, are sacred. Um, I, I began to articulate in the tree campaign and carried that in through the books. I mean, what does that mean to me? It's a secular 21st century agnostic. Well, it's quite hard to say. Maybe there are survivals um, of various longer traditions, druid traditions, perhaps, that are somehow etched into my heart that I don't know about. But clearly, um, it is something that the economic and political system doesn't quite know what to do with in the UK. So you can't really say that people's ideas of sacred are just wrong. I mean, that doesn't seem to fit with with an inclusive um, society. But if my ideas of sacredness attach to things that people want to cut down, where does that leave the establishment? It's quite an interesting and tense moment that is actually, of course, being replayed um, throughout the world in all kinds of scenarios as well. So I was researching the book. I was looking at um, the Australian context, for example, where trees um, were cut down to the, the horror of Aboriginal communities to whom they were very significant. And sometimes trees were cut down for very little reason at all, just to, to make a road journey, you know, a couple of minutes quicker than it would have been otherwise. We think about it in, in the Amazon as well, one of the real front lines of deforestation. And so thinking about sacredness is one way of thinking about being an ally to indigenous um, struggles and also to insist that the world is not ever entirely reducible to capitalism as world system. So I think that idea of sacredness has real force, and I would really like to, 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 to develop that. I have I've flirted with Druidism, I really have. I mean, I, maybe I'll flirt with Druidism um, so, some more. Um, but and I'm really interested in this in, in the context of stuff like, like HS2. So I, I don't think any claims have been made against cutting down trees as HS2 on the grounds specifically of sacredness. But how would um, that work? Clearly, you can't just invent sacredness um, and say, oh, that's sacred, don't, don't harm it, without there being some tradition behind it. But there are long-standing traditions in the UK of thinking about woods as, as sacred groves, even if those um, have kind of faded out and just exist as kind of faint echoes or memories or uh, in, in texts as, as well. So I definitely think it has leverage strategically um, as well as being something that is kind of rich and beautiful and interesting about trees. And Druidism, of course, is interesting because it looks at the old religions um, and whether they have force today. Um, But that's not the only sort of realm or aspect, I suppose, of sacredness or way into sacredness that you look at in the book. Um, Because you also spend a decent chunk of time talking about Avatar, the film, the blue yes. people film. Yes. Um, why? What, what, what's, what's going on with Avatar, sacredness and trees? Well, I, I sort of, like, begrudgingly like bits of, of Avatar, but I'm also appalled by it. And I, I suppose if my premise for the chapter on sacredness is about the limits of commodification, Avatar is interesting because it commodifies the refusal to commodify things. Um, if you see, if that sentence makes any sense, so it's based on you've got the Navi, yes, the blue that's people. perhaps the best summation of Avatar I've heard. Yeah, well, you should. Daniel Heath Justice has got the the, the best article on, on Avatar, which I would recommend people um, ha- have a look at. 
that. So ultimately, it's a 19th century narrative. Um, and James Cameron, the director, has talked about his debt to Ryder Haggard, Henry Ryder Haggard, who wrote a lot of very silly, very racist Victorian adventure um, stories. King Solomon's Mind's been probably the most famous of them. And there's all these little clues in Avatar, little kind of textual references back to Ryder Haggard. So the premise is you've got the noble savages, the Na'vi, who are protecting their forest against the sinister um, colonists who want to extract this mineral called unobtainium and they have to destroy the forest to do it. And of course, the, the film makes you want to be on the side of the Na'vi. You want to support the indigenous people against the capitalists. Um, but in doing so, of course, um, he produces this kind of multi-million pound blockbuster that's also um, spawned a theme park um, as well. And I'm grateful to my students at Sheffield for pointing this theme park out to me. So it's really interesting about how things that can't be commodified are now suddenly commodified. And one of the things, of course, that's most um, commodified is precisely that idea of indigenous sacredness in relation to um, the, the forest. So you get this quite crude imperial conception of the noble savage, which seems to be, at least within the world of the film and its theme park, all that's left to us of environmentalism. So it shows how that opposition between the sacred and the commodified is actually quite a bit more complicated than you might suppose that it is, since the the visual economy of Hollywood cinema is really drawn to that premise, the noble savage against the evil capitalist. Um, So that is why it seemed that Avatar is a really key text for, for thinking deeply about the ambivalence of ideas of sacredness and how they're not just something that um, belong to indigenous people, but something that kind of resonates throughout the world and is appropriated certainly in, in some mainstream Hollywood narratives as well. I think that's a succinct and quite fascinating um, summation of many of the problems with Avatar uh, and almost as, well, actually exactly as a follow-up. Um, how does this then kind of reconcile with looking for sacredness? Yeah, it's a good question. So don't look to Hollywood for sacredness, I suppose. Um, maybe that maybe that's harsh of me. Um, I mean, there, there are at least two religions that have been spawned by um, Hollywood, Jediism, or Jediism, based on the Star Wars franchise, and Dudism, based on, on the Big Lebowski. And um, so, so de- definitely that there are, there's a significant online communities related to these that seem to be entirely um, genuine. But I suppose it's, it's really difficult to disentangle um, the fantastic projection of ideas of the sacred from the lived reality of it. I suppose the key thing is to move beyond the spectacularization of the fantasy forest. So one of the things about Avatar, of course, is the effects. I first saw it in 3D in a cinema. You know, it's amazing. It costs a fortune. God knows what the carbon footprint is for an environmental film of all of this technological wizardry. But ultimately, it's a simulation, isn't it? Um, And of course, simulations can be meaningful and important. Our lives um, are surrounded by them. But if you want to get in contact with the woods to find something that's more deeply meaningful from this postmodern arboreal simulacra, then you need to to smell the leaf mould. You need to go out into the woods and connect with it and be uncomfortable. So I, I think the problem with having your sense of sacredness exist only on a screen is that it's too comfy. You need to get um, uh, you need to get wet feet. You need to feel slightly miserable um, to shake you out of your comfort zone, and that will provide, I think, a deep, deeper and more meaningful experience. It's something that you can't be contained to an hour and a half or two and a half hours or something, however long Avatar is, but I think something that develops through a life of exploring woods. So I, I think that that investment in time and place is 
why it's necessary to move beyond avatar or other cinematic projections or, or literary projections um, to get in contact with the real world, with the real creatures in them. Um, you can't experience the sacredness of words on an app, I would argue. Even if the app doesn't have blue people? Even if the app doesn't have blue people. I don't know. This is just... I don't know if I'm just such such a grumpy old man and I don't believe in <laughs> social media, really. That's fine. I can live with that if that, that, that's what people think. But there's something about immediacy. And there's a great line from the poet John Burnside, which I'm about to get horrifically wrong, um, from his poem History, which is from the anthology The Light Trap, I think. And it's a poem about 9-11. And the setting of the poem is uh, he's on uh, Beach uh, Lucas, which is... Um, uh, near St Andrews in Scotland and seeing some planes, war planes in the sky just after that the towers fell and he's meditating on the experience of contact with the natural world in the company of his son called Lucas, um, I, I think. So there's kind of a play on the name of the place and the name of the son. And anyway, the poem contains a line that's something like, we trade so much to know the virtual, we hardly register the tug of other bodies. Now, I've got that wrong. It's much better way, the way he writes it. But the, the point is that we're surrounded by the, the virtual and are not in tune with the ethical weight of other beings, whether they're plants or animals. And that is the crucial reason why you can't have ethics and politics just on an app, though I said young people tell me these things are useful, I have my doubts personally. Um, but you need to smell the leaf mould, experience the world, um, be present to the creatures, experience yourself being looked at by another being to experience your strangeness in their eyes. That's where ethics lives, not on a screen. So coming then to the last section of the book, um, I am going to guess that by now listeners are not expecting this final section titled Hope to be purely sunshine, rainbows, unicorns, etc. Um, and to be like the other sections of the book, quite fittingly, more ambivalent, more concerned, more poking at things um, that might be uncomfortable, that might change perspectives and open up questions, um, which is thankfully exactly what the section I thought did. Uh, so in some senses, it was almost odd right what what why write a chapter about hope when you admit there are things you are not particularly hopeful about um so i'm wondering if you sort of could take us through sort of how did you make this title work for you what what did you find hope for okay so the publishers loved the idea of hope as the chapter to, to end with so british library publishing were, were, were great to, to work with um, you know, I'd really like to shout out to Abby Day and her team for, for really supporting this work. Um, but but the, the idea of hope, they liked it too much when I um, posited this as end chapter, because it's because thinking about deforestation, that's kind of miserable. Thinking about um, the struggles of indigenous people, you know, it's hard to feel cheerful um, about that in the context of, of ongoing violence. Um, around the world. It's hard to be cheerful about climate change, really. We're not doing that much about it. Um, so despite all of this reason to be um, dubious about hope, there's this real cultural drive to experience hope. And I definitely sense that in the publisher's response to it. Like, yay, um, it's going to have like a happy ending. But here is the kind of solution or the reasons to be cheerful. And as opposed to that, I think hope is the most dangerous conception that we have. And there's been this real wave of books about hope, particularly hope and ecology over the last um, few years. And I often find them intolerable and ideologically dubious. And they often make recourse to this keep calm and carry on mentality, which really winds me up. So the keep calm and carry on um, is just an awful horrific justification for austerity culture and any other kind of um, violence that the establishment wishes to to perpetrate we should not keep calm and carry on we should panic and have a revolution is exactly what what we should do and that idea of keep calm and carry on as where hope lives it 
it, it, I find that like really, really dangerous. And hope is a term that often appears without content. I remember before I lived in Sheffield, I lived in Canada, where I worked at the University of Northern British Columbia. I don't know if I'm going to get this right, but back in those days, they had a thing called We Day in Canada, which was all of these kind of kids celebrating the power of being kids and saying, yay, we're going to hope for a better future. But it was entirely depoliticized. There was no substance to that idea. So this raises the question, if we want to have hope, and you know, hope feels like a good thing to have, how do we balance that against what we know of reality without selling out, like for, or just kind of closing our eyes to the reality of the, the world. And one word, a new word that I learned in the process of writing this chapter is hopium, the idea. Um, so obviously that's a kind of um, a linkage of opium and, and, and hope. So the supposition behind this world is that hope is like a drug that makes you forget. It numbs the pain, but it doesn't address the symptoms. And that seems to me that a lot of talking about let's be hopeful about the future is of that kind. There's no there's no politics, there's no ethics, there's no understanding of the world. So this was my, my starting point about hope, is that it is an idea that demands suspicion, um, even paranoia, that we should not take hope at face value. Yet at the same time, I don't think there's much to be said for a mentality that is entirely gloomy. And I, now I do. I, I incline. I incline somewhat towards the gloomy, in in general. But I don't think, as um, a basis for ecological activism, that is very helpful. There needs to be a sense of possibility. And so this last chapter was about trying to cling on to possibility on a blighted world and a damaged planet. And it, it's if you, well, if you try and do that, you know, it's everywhere. I mean, one one of the things that I, I've been doing. Um, recently don't tell anyone this i've, I've started a, a secret <laughs> life as a phantom planter um so ba- based on what so having read about social media i really love this social media page by this guy in northern ireland called the phantom planter presumably not his real name uh who writes really interestingly about his past of of drug addiction and alcoholism and organized crime i think and how he's become a buddhist and he's going about planting trees in northern ireland and elsewhere he had a little bit of press for it. But inspired by that, I've, I've been growing plant trees from seed. I've been learning about different varieties. I've been doing this with my daughters uh, as well. And I've now secretly planted 17 trees in secret locations um, in South Yorkshire. Uh, so this, to me, is my mini version of, of, of hope. It's not just planting the trees, which the council will presumably just mow over eventually anyway, but not all of them, but it's about the experience of it, experience with my daughters of holding the dirt in my hand uh, and watering them and watching them grow and watching things grow that we haven't planted, just random things that occur because they've been pooed out by a blackbird or whatever and the seed just grows. The planet is still alive and left to its own, you know, it's it, it's it's going to come back to some version of, of, of flourishing, not the same as it would have been um, before um, the, our kind of current ecocidal regime, but a recombinant ecology, um, as the ecologists call it, a mixture of native and non-native species. And the fact that it does that, that's where, where hope is. You know, e- even like, like a kind of concrete car park or whatever, looks completely sterile, leave it for long enough, the plants are going to come through. So the world is alive um, and that um, is going to carry on going. So it's just the kind of organic basis of the, the, the planet and the, the small lives of worms and birds around us that, that are still here. That's where hope is. And it's kind of a little bit abject. And I think people don't, don't like small wriggly creatures. So what one of the things that... I've had in my small garden in Sheffield. We had loads and loads of small wiggly creatures. We didn't know what they were in this little um, bit of water that had um, accumulated in an old sand pit. And they hatched out into blue bottles, not the most romantic of creatures, but it was kind of lovely watching them grow and then all all hatch out at at the same time. So attunement with the small wiggly creatures, that to me is where hope is. Not in these silly, big, 
like empty promises you get from politicians. So hope is grassroots, it's tree roots, it's community-based, it's working with the people you love, the people in your community to make things different in the ground where you are. You know, and that's not easy. It takes a lot of work and we're all like working crazy hours in our jobs anyway. But that to me is where where hope is. You know, it's an old green mantra, isn't it? Um, Think global, act local. And and that to me um, is something that certainly I got the energy for that. I got from the the tree campaign in Sheffield and that focus on the community, not the the big corporate world, but on the, the earth the Wrigley creatures and the community. That's where, where hope exists and that's where political change is going to come from. With that rousing um, explanation, I think it makes my final question um, perhaps even more relevant than it usually is. Uh, presuming that at least part of this answer will be planting trees 18, 19 and 20, if not more. Um, now that this book is out, is there anything you're working on now or looking to work on that you'd like our audience to be aware of? Well, try, I keep having too many ideas. If I was going to like <laughs> write all the things I've got ideas for, I'd have to live considerably longer than it is likely that I'm going to live. Um, so one, so one tree thing that I, I want to do is I want, well, it's not just a tree thing, it's a plant thing that I, I want to, I was going to do it this year, but then um, I, I couldn't because I've got gout. That's, a, that's another confession. I'm in confessional mode. So I've, I've not been, I've been, my movements have been somewhat um, circumscribed by this ridiculous Victorian ailment. Um, but what I want to do is plant something every day of the year. And I try and do that in 2024. And everything I plant, I'm going to write something about. Uh, and I want to do that in, in, in situ as far as possible by leaving, not publishing things in books, by publishing them um, sustainably but out in, in the world. So I might plant um, a, a sapling in a secret location and um, attach a small um, poem to that or something along those lines. I'm interested in kind of pushing academic production, community activism and ecology together in uh, a, a sort of more participatory um, way. So that's my plan for 2024. Um, I don't whether I'll do it or not. I, I don't know. Since it's a bit a big commitment, and obviously there's, there's, I'd have to learn a, a lot more. I don't have a massive background in, in gardening. I've le- learned. I mean, you learn from your mistakes. I've made made loads of mistakes with um, grow, growing trees, but I definitely want to learn more about that. Plant different things um, in kind of public places, a bit in my own um, home as well, and maybe in, in other people's homes if if they'll let me. So that is the, the plan. Some kind of hybrid academic creative horticultural initiative um, coming to a neglected plot somewhere in South Yorkshire in 2024. (laughs) All right. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if you have some volunteers or some people inspired by that idea, um, having listened to that answer and this podcast overall. Um, So to those listeners who want to engage further with the book, reminder, it's titled The Heart of the Forest, Why Woods Matter, published by British Library in 2022. John, thank you so much for being with us again on the podcast. Well, thank you, Miranda. My pleasure.